Welcome to Partnering Leadership, a top global leadership podcast for purpose-driven leaders with a growth mindset seeking to learn from the leadership journey of change makers and business insights from leading global thinkers. Tuesday conversations with CEOs from the greater Washington, D.C. region and Thursday conversations with best-selling leadership book authors and business thinkers. For additional leadership insights and bonus content, visit us at PartneringLeadership.com. Now here's your host, Mahan Tavakoli. Welcome to Partnering Leadership. I'm really excited this week to be speaking with Chuck Wisner. Chuck is the author of the recently released book, The Art of Conscious Conversations, Transforming How We Talk, Listen, and Interact. This is essential both in leading our teams and organizations, as well as our personal relationships. So I really enjoyed the conversation with Chuck, understanding some of the elements that it takes for us to be able to be more conscious in the kinds of conversations that we have with others. I'm sure you will learn a lot from the conversation and enjoy it as well. I also appreciate hearing from you. Keep your comments coming. Mahan at MahanTavakoli.com. There's a microphone icon on PartneringLeadership.com. You can leave voice messages for me there. Don't forget to follow the podcast, Tuesday Conversations with Magnificent Changemakers from the Greater Washington, D.C. DMV region, and Thursday Conversations with brilliant global thought leaders like Chuck. Now, here's my conversation with Chuck Wisner. Chuck Wisner, welcome to Partnering Leadership. I am thrilled to have you in this conversation with me. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Chuck, I'm really excited and can't wait to talk about the art of conscious conversations, transforming how we talk, listen, and interact. Because whether it is in our personal lives or professional lives as we lead teams and organizations, conversations are core to that relationship building and helping align people bring them along, and move them toward the objectives of the organization. So it plays a big role organizationally and individually. But before we get to some of your perspectives on conversations, would love to know whereabouts you grew up and how your upbringing impacted the kind of person you've become, Chuck. I actually grew up on a farm until I was about five or six. It was a working farm, but we were not the farmers. We were just residents on this beautiful property. And then we moved to a small town in Pennsylvania. My family was a bit troubled. I had three older sisters. I was the youngest and I was the son, which brought a whole lot of dynamics. The difference between how girls are allowed to be emotional and how men are allowed to be emotional. So there was a lot of those dynamics, a lot of turmoil. I actually started playing drums when I was seven. And I was so drawn to that. That became my life in school and in high school. By the time I was in high school, I was playing professionally with either rock bands and then a jazz band and actually recorded some music. So it was really my world. And when I went to go to college, I got really bad counseling. And because my role models were a band director at some small high school in Pennsylvania, and I already was playing professionally, and geez, I'm not going to go get a degree in music so I could be a band director. So I didn't go to college my first year out of high school. The next year, 
happened to be the first year of the Vietnam draft. I didn't luck out. My friends lucked out because they were in college. I was part of that first lottery. I got a number that wasn't safe. I was going to be drafted. And colleagues said, come join the Air Force National Guard Band. And I auditioned for that and I got in. But that meant I spent seven years in the National Guard Air Force Band doing my duty, playing music, which had its downside, but it was a nice way to serve. And in that seven years, I actually started working in architecture. I had a pretty big creative side and I moved to Boston to go to architecture school and did that for many years and love it. It's a great profession. It's a tough profession. And then to make a long story short, we had a partner at one point who became an alcoholic. We didn't know how to deal with it. We got help. Her name was Linda Reed. Linda came in and just helped us see what was going on, helped us manage it, got us out of the dilemma. And I was like, how the hell did she do that? It was like magic. (laughs) Architecture is great, but I didn't know anything about this other stuff that seemed magical. And that just put me on another journey. And that journey then led to studying and mediation. And four years later, I left architecture. I changed careers. What a wonderful way to capture your journey into studying conversations. I imagine though, Chuck, as a student of music, drumming in your case, and then being good at it and playing in jazz bands, there is a certain level of conversation that takes place through music. So you were a student of conversations even from your youth. Absolutely. So I became a percussionist. That means anything that has a hammer that hits it, including piano. So I had a wide range of instruments, but jazz music really is a prime example of how to listen and respond because it's this give and take and it's listening and responding. It's a lovely thing and a great example of how we can collaborate better. That's important, Chuck. You also mentioned we live in conversations like fish live in water. And I wonder, is there a time when we were better at conversations and it's a competency that over periods of time we've lost? I think there's two parts of the answer. At one level, there's a, a lot we know about conversations and the power of words that we aren't taught. So there's a whole world of philosophy of language. It's a whole world of linguistics that sort of deconstruct conversations and words. In fact, there's only five speech acts that everything we do can be constituted around those five speech acts. And then they unfold into more complexity. But growing up, we aren't taught any of that stuff so that we don't have the distinctions about language that we do about other things. And in the book, I talk about the reason the practices are important is because if we're learning to play golf or we're learning to play tennis or a musical instrument, you have to learn what a scale is and you have to learn about how to hold your drumsticks or you have to learn a whole lot of things to be able to be in that language. I think, and one of the reasons I wrote the book was to create some of this understanding that we never were taught so that we could no longer be quite as innocent in conversation as we are 
now I have a responsibility to say, oh, I see what's happening and change gears. The second part of that is I think it's very cultural. I think at some level, if you go way back to other cultures, maybe even the indigenous American Indians, they had a whole different way of solving problems, a whole different way of talking out problems around their circles and power and the balance between masculine and feminine that then when the Europeans came, we're doing it quite differently. Chuck, a very individualistic focus sometimes keeps us from properly listening and engaging in conversations. What I find is with the greater complexity of the world, we need to be able to do that even more. Yes, if we get locked into our world, what makes sense to us? That's a huge barrier to hearing others. It's essential for us to be able to connect with others. You mentioned repeatedly in the book that self-understanding is a big part of it. Now, you mentioned the four types of conversations, which are stories, perspectives, possibilities, and commitments. And the first one being that storytelling conversations. You say the stories we tell ourselves are not the truth. I know that's a bit of a shocker for some people, but when we say our stories are not the truth, 80% of our stories are based on our interpretation of what we're seeing in the world. Our experience, our history, our culture, our family, our education, our religion, all of those filters tell us this is what's going on. And we actually have a part of our brain that is a story maker. And it weaves all that together and go, this is what's happening. This is how you can think about it. And then we get attached to that and we believe it's the truth. The fact that it, it might be true, parts of it might be true, but it's only one story out of many. And then I think I break down in the book that our stories are made up of two things, basically, our facts, which we can agree on or not agree on. There is no such thing as alternative facts and our opinions. And most of the time we're operating out of our opinions because that's how we identify ourselves. That's how we think about the world. And we respond from there. And that's the crux of why our stories aren't the truth. That is really powerful, Chuck. What I find is that the stories we make up in our own minds about the world around us, about the people, about their intentions, have a significant impact in our approach to them. But part of what you impact our way of engaging with others. Underline is that we also have stories about ourselves and that also impacts our way of engaging with others. Yeah. And I share a few personal examples in the book about stories that I had about myself, the big enough man story, reflecting back on my growing up with three sisters. So the message I was given by my grandfather and by my father was, you aren't a big enough man. Guess what? That was their opinion. That wasn't the truth. But as a little boy, I heard it. I gave them power. They were the adults in the room. And I took that as the truth. So what that meant for me for many years was a lack of confidence, a lack of owning my own power, inability to push back on people, a fear of conflict. All because of that one story. One of my teachers, Raphael, he said, we can take a look at our master stories. 
the ones that hold us back, the ones that don't allow us to be our full self and be in the world fully present and confident. So yeah, we can all have a look at a story that isn't serving us well. It's an important practice when I'm working with CEOs or executives. Sometimes it's getting people to become aware of the stories that they have as frameworks for their behaviors. So many times Mm -hmm. we haven't gone through the practices that you lay out to become even aware of the stories that lead to the assumptions that we base our habits and practices and behaviors around. Yeah. And it's true for both sides. It's true for the leader and it's true for the director of board or the worker or the associate or however you want to call it. Because that dynamic, when you play out unchecked stories, let's call it that, then the dynamic of the hierarchy and the power dynamic, things start getting pretty messy pretty fast. Even for a leader with power, he might have a story that is unchecked. He's not trying to do any harm consciously, but if he holds a story and it's unchecked and it has consequences for other people and he's blind to that, that creates a whole lot of turmoil inside an organization. And likewise, on the other side of the coin, I've worked with leaders who realize that they were being jerks or they were being overpowering. They were really passionate. And one particular leader I worked with, Joe, he was so passionate about what had to be done. And he would get in front of his team and he was his flip chart. This was a few years ago. He would be drawing like, yeah, we have to do this. We have to do this. And he would never get anything back. When I started working with him and I sat in on meetings, I put the mirror up and said, Joe, you're not getting back because you're coming on so strong with what you think has to be done that there's no room for anybody else. When he did change, he said, look, I want to make it safe for you guys to speak up. You might disagree with me. It was hard for them to let go of their story about Joe. (laughs) So it gets pretty messy. That is such a great example because in that instance, you had Joe change his approach. But as you said, when we have had experience with people, we have a tough time changing our story of them evolving and changing. You also mentioned that our brain's awareness and autopilot patterns serve to thwart our conversations. And I find our egos get in the way a lot, Chuck. So how can we try to address it in a way that our ego doesn't get in the way of the stories that make up for better conversations. We cannot wrestle with our demons and our egos serve as demons often. Neuroscience is caught up to that in saying we all have different voices, different personalities because of how we were raised and what our stories are. But rather than try to exorcise them, get rid of them, the first step is say, oh, wow, I have a story. I have an ego. It says I have to be right. So now we can beat up on ourselves. Now we're beating up on ourselves about negative stuff, which is a terrible cycle we'll never get out of. But to recognize and actually name that voice, oh, there's my know-it-all ego, or there's know-it-all Chuck. And as soon as we can do that, we get a little separation from our ego rather than taking over and go, thank you very much, ego. But you know what? There's other voices in the room 
I don't have to be right. Let me listen. That sounds easy and it's hard work. It is. And that's why I go back to the practices that you have, because one of the things is for us to try to shrink some of those blind spots through the practices, the more awareness we have, then the more we can change our behaviors and approach situations and conversations differently. That's why it's important, not just awareness at the level of reading and nodding, it's awareness at the level of self-reflection. Yes. So we can break that down into two pieces. We can say there's the behavior that I exhibit. I get mad in a meeting, I holler at someone, or I get quiet in a meeting and I disappear. There's that behavior. And we might have a coach or someone says, you have that behavior, but really the only way to undo that behavior is to look at the thinking underneath it. Do I have that behavior because I'm afraid? Do I have that behavior because I'm not confident about this subject? What's my thinking underneath it? And if we break that down, then we have a chance to go, oh, I can break that pattern. I talk a lot in the book about we have these patterns. The reason I like that word is because it's less judgmental. I can take a neutral look at my pattern and go, oh, I do have that pattern. What's my story underneath? And then we have a fighting chance to change it. That is the objective. This becomes a great framework for us to have that fighting chance through that self-reflection. I loved when you talk about exploring our private and public conversations and closing the gap. So can you briefly describe the discrepancy between the external conversations and the internal conversations and what steps we can take to close the gap? So our external conversation is we're all programmed and patterned to behave in a certain way in our interactions with other. My wife is from a WASPy family. I don't come from a WASPy family. Our rules, our standards about what's polite in company is really different. I'm more relaxed. I'm probably more assertive, probably a little more rough around the edges. So we're all programmed in certain ways. However, while I'm saying, oh, how nice to meet you, or I'm glad to have you on board, welcome to the team, I might be thinking, oh gosh, I don't know if this is going to work out. They aren't showing up how I expect them to show up. And my theory is that the bigger the gap between our public conversation and our private internal dialogue, the more stress we live in. So it behooves us to take a hard look at our private conversation, right? Now, the scary thing for most people, and I've done this exercise with hundreds of people, is to write down that exercise. Here's what was said by me and by her or him, and here's what I was thinking the whole time. Because when you write it down, first of all, you're getting it out of the jumble of your brain. You put it down on paper. And most people go, oh my God, I really did think that. What a stupid idiot. I can't believe she said that. I never want to work with him again. I can't believe I ran into him at the coffee machine, whatever it is. And if we can look at that honestly and then ask four critical questions, what you'll find is there's gold in that poison. There's gold in that toxin of our private conversation. And the gold means I can turn something that's really negative, and there's plenty of swear words in the private conversation, I can turn something that's negative into something that I can talk about 
with the other person. Hey, I have a concern about how this is going. Can we agree on what we can do next? Which all of a sudden sort of reduces that private conversation noise. And the less private conversation you have, the more present you can be in any conversation you're engaged in. This is really important, Chuck, with respect to psychological safety in teams and organizations. I had a conversation with Timothy Clark on the four stages of psychological safety, and he talks about the highest stage. You have very low social friction and very high intellectual friction. So when you are able to close this gap, in essence, it means you have the kind of relationship and ability to have that intellectual friction out in the open with the other person in the conversation, rather than the friction that is going on in our individual heads. The work I do with people is say, once you know what your private conversation is, you're not going to blurt it out because that creates all kinds of hell. And you don't want to hold it in because that creates internal damage. So the trick is you process it so that you can have a fair, honest, open dialogue with someone and have a concern or, oh, we're looking at that in different ways. Can we compare notes? Or, oh, I see we have different goals. Let's see if we can talk about that. That's processing that stuff that drives us nuts into a very productive dialogue which doesn't mean avoiding conflict. It just means doing it in a very productive way. It makes the conversations more productive, more authentic, and enables better relationships also. Because going back to a big part of the point that you make, these conscious conversations are at the core of great relationships. So if we want to have those great relationships, we have to have this level of conversation. I also love the exercise that you have in there that. Chris Argus had come up with the right-hand column, which you mentioned is going through the facts and then the left-hand column, the emotions that we feel. So how can a leader and team benefit from this exercise, which I found very powerful in thinking through for myself? With teams, what I've done is we start by doing individual work. So I'll ask each person, think of a conversation that really riled you up, a conversation that had you spinning and upset. You walk away from a meeting going, why in the hell did I waste my hour there? And then do the exercise in the right-hand column, what was actually said? Because what we say is factual. It can be measured. It's subjective. And then write in the left-hand column, what was I thinking and feeling while I was speaking and while the other person was speaking. So the left-hand column is my whole dialogue. I can't believe she said that. She says something and I'm thinking, she's totally incompetent. I say something, she says, let me say, oh man, we are really screwed, like that. And so I have them do that exercise individually. And then I ask them, what was in that left-hand column? And I get curse words. Negative judgment, (laughs) unbelievable stupidity, (laughs) meanness. And that's pretty universal. Say, okay, so relax. Don't judge yourself. You're not alone. We all do this. We're in a room of 20 people and we all do this, right? And then once they're aware of that, then we go through the process of, okay, what would you do if you process this? And I give them the tricks to process 
And then they pair up and they work with one another to process. And then the end is, okay, if you had to revisit that conversation, how would you redo it now that you know what you know? The goal is not to beat yourself up for swearing and having a negative judgment about someone. The goal is to say, okay, what do I learn from that? What am I really trying to get at? And process it so you can say, oh, wow, let's talk about this. So that's the goal of redesigning or reimagining and then executing a different kind of conversation. That's why, Chuck, it goes back to the title of your book. We have conversations all the time. This is conscious. So it's being more conscious of the kind of conversations we have. And I love the thinking behind this exercise and the fact that it makes us much more conscious and then changes our approach to the conversation. The book is organized around the four types of conversation because that's a structure that held a lot of complexity. In fact, years ago, working with a client from Chrysler, and he was a client for five years or so, we were having a drink one night, and he says, this is great. All these tools, mental models, emotional intelligence, all these tools, but I don't know how to connect the dots because what do I use when? I stood on that for quite a while until I came across this concept of the four conversations, which comes out of the philosophy of language world. Because each conversation has different techniques, different tools, different practices. And so we take it apart and then we weave it back together again because we're in all four conversations practically all the time. It's not broken down individually. We don't go through one, then to the next one. It's all of them at the same time. The second conversation type you talk about is collaborative conversations. And you wrote... In our interactions, we aren't transmitting and receiving data like TVs or radios, a signal sent out, signal received. Unlike radio antennas, our reception of others' words is rarely straightforward because of our big, beautiful, filtering, sense-making brains. (laughs) So because of this beautiful thing we have, we aren't sending or receiving signals that are perfectly in alignment with the other person. So what you say is, I hear, but in a nanosecond, it goes through those filters, right? Our sense-making brain goes, oh, and it could be your words. It could be your body language. It could be your eyes. It could be anything. But we pick up, more or less, we all have a different range of ability there, but we all pick up all those cues and make sense of it. And then we are busy figuring out what our response is going to be. So there's a couple barriers there to how and why it's difficult to listen. We can read as many books as we want about listening, like to mirror the other person, to reflect back their words, to body language similarly, to ask them things. But until we do our own work about understanding our stories and work on this ability to be more conscious about our story and our sort of attachments and patterns, it's really hard to change to be a better listener. That is one of the things that I find, Chuck, in interactions with organizations, leaders, their teams. A lot of times people are frustrated with the fact that they believe that other people, especially their leaders, aren't really listening to them. 
And you talk in collaborative conversations about open advocacy, open inquiry, and listening. And in listening, you mentioned being present with curiosity, empathy, and an ability to absorb other people's stories. My question is, though, we are all under uh, lots of pressures, both cognitive pressures, the devices vibrating and sending alerts all the time, the world at our fingertips when we want it, lots of different priorities. What are some of the practices you recommend for us as individuals and for leaders in organizations to become better listeners? Because as you said, it's not reading about listening. It's an actual practice to become a better listener, which is one of those things that I find in assessing organizations and teams, people are most frustrated with their leaders. The leaders feel and believe that they are listening. Their people believe otherwise. So that part of the book on collaborative conversations, I hit the basics and it's very complicated, but I think that we're taught in pattern to default to advocacy. Our default is I should have the answer I should know the answer. In fact, that's why I get paid. That's why I get more stripes because I'm the smartest guy in the room or the smartest gal in the room. But we default to advocacy by training on books, right? I'd say one of the biggest things we can do to change our listening and to change our patterns is to default to inquiry. And if things start going a little sideways in a conversation, instead of getting defensive, note, I'm getting defensive. That's not going to get me anywhere. Let me see if I can understand this person before I jump down their throat and tell them they're wrong. So if we default to inquiry, the trick there is not to do inquiry as inquisition, but to do inquiry with curiosity, to really want to understand, where is this person coming from? And I think you'll see the thread throughout the book where I use four questions. Those four questions become a great template for asking good questions. You're in a conversation and you don't get what they're saying and you want to push back. You can say, hold on, let me understand. What are you trying to accomplish here? Or what are your concerns? Let me understand your concerns. That's the best thing we can do to start changing our pattern. The listening part comes from that internal ability to stop the defensive pattern or to stop the know-it-all pattern or whatever it is. That's why I like that word absorb. It's different to just listen, but it's one thing to listen to the word, but then to really absorb and understand or seek to understand, as Covey would say. What a gem of a perspective that we focus primarily and default to advocacy especially what I find, Chuck, is as leaders move up in the organization, they feel like they have to be the ones that have the answers and Mm -hmm. that people look to them for the answers. That's not necessarily the case. We need to default more, as you say, to inquiry and genuine inquiry. It's not an inquisition. It is non-judgmentally trying to get the perspective of the other individual. Going back to our conversation 10 minutes ago, it's a two-way street. A, the leader has to create a psychological safety that voices matter, that other perspectives matter. And people have to accept that and test it. 
because there are risks. Someone could say that, but not be sincere about it. And then you get in trouble. So it has to be sincere. You have to test it. And for leaders, what they have to realize is how much power their voice has because of their position. And I have nothing against hierarchy, but how we operate in that world as leaders is critical. And most people don't realize that when they're speaking their opinion, which by the way, isn't the truth, it's often received as, well, that's what Julie wants us to do. So we're going to march off and do it. And so there's a responsibility on both sides rather than if, if Julie makes it safe and when we don't ask questions, it's our fault. But if the leader is unaware or unconscious and just doesn't realize the power of their voice, there's huge repercussions, as, as you well know. Yeah. There is real power in that voice. Now, the third element, you talk about the creative conversation. And in it, you say, trust your intuition. On one level, I understand that the stories we tell ourselves are not the truth. So we have to challenge that. So how do we balance the challenging with trusting our intuition? How do you balance those So on the creative conversation, this is about putting aside some of our patterns so we can think bigger and we can have an open mind so ideas can come in. Because for you, for me, for anybody listening, if you stop and think about if you had a great idea yesterday or just in a conversation and you ask yourself, where in the hell did that come from? You aren't going to find where it came from. But in that moment, you were receptive to receiving that. And so when I think about intuition, I'm thinking about being in that more open-minded framework where something might come in. And if I'm closed down and say, no, this is how it has to be, I'm not going to hear that intuition. Whereas if I'm an open mind and go, there might be five possibilities different than the one I'm thinking about, then an idea bubbles up from a group of people. And you can go, oh, wow, I never thought about that. And the same thing happens to us internally. My wife and I have a game going on now where the one thing in the world that can stress me out is my kids, but otherwise I'm pretty good. (laughs) But little things like when I'm working or when we're cooking or even when I'm teaching, a voice might say, don't go there or don't put your computer there. There's a reason that voice was there because the computer falls or someone gets upset about what I said. And so you're right. It's tricky business. But I think there's a difference that the private conversation that is negative, unchecked, and unprocessed does carry a lot of danger. I think if we're in a creative, open mind space, or I think about I can be in a conversation with a closed fist or I'd be in a conversation with an open hand. And if we're in that frame of mind, things come through. I'm talking about listening to that. And one practice to do about that, which I mentioned in the book, is I like gardening. I like being outside, whether it's the chainsaw or whether I'm about to get tomatoes out of the garden. I love to go outside without a plan because then I'm not programmed. I'm not scheduling. I'm going, let me go outside and just enjoy what shows up. That's a very different experience that most of us don't take time to have. So that is 
the openness to the intuition. And one of the things that you emphasize in the book, especially in creative conversations, is the importance for us to focus in on our emotional intelligence and improving our emotional intelligence. How can we do that in order to have better creative conversations? What I believe and what my experience is that our emotions are real. Someone says something, I get upset or I get defensive or whatever we do, whatever our pattern is. The emotion is real, but our emotion is actually a physical body manifestation of our thinking. And so part of emotional intelligence is A, recognizing the anger, recognizing the frustration, recognizing the disappointment, recognizing the sadness, and then going, okay, let me understand how am I thinking about this? What's driving that emotion? Because each emotion has a story underneath. Sadness, I just lost a dear partner and music friend, music mate. And that sadness is, oh, I'm going to live without my friend Fred. Life won't be the same. Or anger usually has a story about something happening to me that I think is unfair. So one way quick hit on our emotions is to recognize them, call them out, name them, and then look underneath and go, what's the story underneath there? Because from then we have some breathing room. We aren't stuck on the emotion. We aren't reacting to the emotion. We actually can manage it and move through conversation in a much more present and real way. Understanding those emotions is a part of understanding ourselves better and being able to have, whether it's creative conversations or even when you talk about commitment conversations, which is don't make promises you can't keep, emotional intelligence plays a role in it. I would love to know your perspectives, Chuck. You mentioned the role that authority plays in commitment conversations. And within organizations, as much as many organizations want to talk about the fact that authority doesn't play a role. In reality, uh, most organizations that I've seen, there's still a role that authority plays, whether seniority, title, so on and so forth. So what role do you see authority playing in commitment conversations? And how can we think about it as we are trying to get our teams to have better commitment conversations and not just look for the authority. For folks that haven't read the book, the commitment conversation is one of our favorite conversations because it's the action conversation. What are we going to do? Who's doing what by when? So that's the commitment conversation. And it's huge in business. That's how business thrives by promises. We make promises at home too. We make promises in our communities, but put the promises and the commitment conversation into a hierarchy. I'm not negative on hierarchy because it is helpful, but it carries a weight that if we aren't conscious of it, we have less clarity around commitments. We jump to action rather than think things through or rather than consider other possibilities, other options. We jump to action. We're all addicted to that. What are we going to do? That's a nice buzzword in meeting. Okay, what's next? What are we going to do? But the power thing in a hierarchy, the downside is that unawares, the boss can say, what do you think? And no one says anything. And then she says, 
I think we should go in this direction, right? Everyone nods their head. The meeting is over. And guess what happens at the coffee machine? No way I want to do that. No way. It's the stupidest idea I've heard. Forget it. And I'm not exaggerating. Chuck, that is exactly the way it happens. And the frustration a lot of times leaders have when I'm interacting with them or coaching some CEOs, they say, but I asked people, no one said anything. So they are frustrated because that's exactly the way it happens. People might nod, say, yes, boss. Yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. But then they leave and go, what the hell? So (laughs) my advice to leaders is first read the book (laughs) and then take 15 minutes to have collaborative and creative conversations because we have a tendency to jump to action. We have to make a circuit breaker on that and go, how do we stop jumping to actions? We we might make a bad decision. We might regret a decision. We make a decision without information that we need. Back up, take a little time, go, okay, look, there's seven people in the room here. I want to hear everybody's perspective. And I don't want you to agree with me. I want to hear the differences because that's how I'm going to get smart. I'll be a better leader if you help me do that. And then the creative conversation is, okay, what are five ways we can solve this problem? Now, a lot of times the reaction is, we don't have time for this shit. I'll tell you, you don't have time not to do this stuff because of bad decisions, et cetera. 10 minutes to go, what are the three other ways we could solve this problem? And many times a solution might bubble up that the leader or any one person in the room might not have thought of. I love that, Chuck. And I encourage the audience, in addition to reading your book, to put it in practice. Because one of the reasons many people have succeeded and moved up in organizations has been a certain level of bias for action. However, especially in a more complex world where no one individual has all the information and all the smarts, it is critical to learn how to have these types of conversations to engage a broader group. However, it needs to be done consciously. It doesn't happen by just asking a default question at the end of making a statement about your belief and no one objects, then you move on. And if if leaders are experiencing that, where they say, here's what I think, and then they get a silent room, stop putting your idea out first. (laughs) Just stop. Don't do that. Hey, we have a problem. This candle isn't operating very well. And then zip it up and see what else is in the room. See what other ideas bubble up. Just stop doing that. It requires many of the skills you talk about throughout the book. Now, are there any practices that you guide people to start out with as they want to become more conscious of the impact of their conversations? Generally, when I'm working with a new individual and maybe a team, I always say the first step and probably 60% of the work is start tracking the conversations that trigger you. Oh, you're in a meeting, whether it's one-on-one or whether it's in a group meeting, something triggers you and you go, God damn it, you know, this shouldn't be happening. Or I can't believe we're going down that road again. Track those conversations because what you'll find is there's a pattern here. There's going to be either certain kind of people 
certain kind of conversations, certain kind of leaders that trigger you. Become aware of those triggers and then deconstruct that. When you look at why you are triggered, like looking at process in your private conversation, when you're looking at why you're triggered, why am I concerned? Are there power issues? Do I have a different standard? What do I want versus what's happening? We can deconstruct all that without a whole lot of effort. And what happens is, and this is my experience with many leaders, they go, wow, I have a whole new vocabulary here to understand why I'm triggered, which then gives me an opportunity to say how I can show up differently or how I can engage in a more productive way. So that's one. It's really important. That is a great one to raise the awareness and help us show up differently. At the end of the day, that's what matters as we grow and we have a greater impact on whether it is the organization or the individuals we interact with at work and in our personal lives. How best can the audience find out more about you and connect with you? I recently redid my website and it's chuckwisner.com. They can sign up for my newsletter and my email is chuck at chuckwisner.com. Feel free to shoot me a line. And then I am on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter. Uh, on all those things so they can easily find me on those places. It's an outstanding book and outstanding way for us to focus some of our mental energy on the awareness and on the practices that it takes for us to have more conscious conversations because we have conversations, whether at home at the dinner table or in the work environment on Zoom or in-person meetings, it's conversations Those conversations require some time and effort and some focus. Now, in the closing chapter of your book, you have a quote in there from Hafez. And as an Iranian-American, for anyone who is unfamiliar with Hafez, the Persian poet, Iranians celebrate the Persian New Year, and everyone has the Hafez book on the table. It's much pride in Hafez, but I also love these words. So I want to end with these words where in Hafez's poem, he says, how did the rose ever open its heart and give to this world all of its beauty? It felt the encouragement of light against its being. Otherwise, we all remain too frightened. Thank you, Chuck, for being the light to help us have better, more conscious conversations, better relationships at home and at work. Thank you so much for joining the conversation, Chuck Wisner. Thank you. Enjoyed it tremendously. Thank you. You've been listening to Partnering Leadership with your host, Mahan Tavakoli. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a rating and review of the podcast on your favorite podcasting app, and forward the conversation to a friend or colleague so you can help more people discover their purpose, grow professionally with meaning, and have a greater impact. For additional leadership insights and bonus content, visit us at partneringleadership.com.